Welcome back to Blockstream Talk. Today we're speaking with Blockstream's co-founder and CFO, Eric Svensson. Blockstream has a number of high-profile personalities on the roster, but there are also a number of key decision makers and longtime team members that fly a little bit more under the radar. I think Eric probably falls more into that category. He's a Blockstream co-founder and has been around since the beginning. So I think it's interesting to get his perspective on Blockstream's long-term vision and an update on how that fits in with current market dynamics. Blockstream is an almost uniquely low time preference company. As Eric puts it, the goal is more to try and get ahead of the puck than to chase it. In this conversation, we talked about the interest Blockstream is getting for institutional applications, how the investment industry is slowly moving our way, emerging versus developed market Bitcoin usage, how the different pieces of the Blockstream product offering fit together, and what it's like to learn about Bitcoin from cypherpunk OGs like Greg Maxwell, Peter Woolley, and Dr. Adam Back. Eric, thanks for joining the show today. Yeah, great to be here. Long time, first time. To start off, can you tell us a bit about your journey? Um, what's your backstory? And, and how did you become CFO and co-founder of Blockstream alongside Adam? Yeah, so uh, it's actually a pretty interesting story. Um, my background is uh, traditional finance. Um, I spent some time in investment banking, and then I, I found my way to the insurance industry. Uh, and I was actually at AIG during the financial crisis. Um, my job was pretty boring. I was lending money to food companies. Um, and it just really gave me a bit of pause about how the traditional finance system was working. And I took that opportunity to quit my finance career. I started working for startups and I ended up consulting for founding teams. Uh, and that's how I met Adam and the rest of the co-founders. Um, Adam hired me as a consultant to build the financial model and help them raise the seed round. Uh, and then he ended up inviting me to join the founding team. And uh, now I'm president and CFO. Is that kind of how you got into Bitcoin as well? I mean, that, that was the path for me is around the, the 2008 financial crisis and just seeing all of the issues that emerged from that and how the legacy system appeared to have these glaring cracks in it that I previously wasn't that aware of. And that kind of pushed me towards Bitcoin as an interesting macro asset and maybe a, a potential way for the world to kind of get out of this mess that we found ourselves in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was really good at my job, um, but I realized during that period that um, what I did didn't really matter. And in a weird way, it kind of contributed to some of the problems that led to the financial crisis. Uh, so I had, I knew about Bitcoin. Um, I owned Bitcoin. I followed Bitcoin, uh, but it was still kind of a shock to walk into the Airbnb and meet Adam and Greg Maxwell and Peter Willa and, and a lot of the other core developers. Um, you know, it was kind of like having guitar lessons from Jimi Hendrix. Um, so it was definitely, um, you know, I definitely dove down the rabbit hole at that point. Uh, and I'm, you know, very fortunate that uh, Adam invited me to join the founding team. But yeah, it was pretty surreal that I was looking at um, joining a company that was hopefully going to prevent another AIG financial crisis from happening. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't find a much better guide than, than that than that threesome there to kind of take you through it. Yeah. Um, what about Mount Gox? I've got Mount Gox on the list of questions here. Can you share your experiences there and, and how those um, helped shape your experiences at Blockstream? Yeah, well, it was really uh, interesting because I, I met Adam uh, in March of 2014. 
And that was a month after Mt. Gox declared bankruptcy. And so, you know, as I was doing my due diligence, that was one of the questions I asked him is how is this situation and, and you know, potentially future Mt. Gox issues going to impact the Bitcoin ecosystem? Uh, and he said, well, I have a plan for that. <laughs> and he went on to describe um, part of his vision for Blockstream and how uh, he had um, in mind to create some technology that would hopefully prevent another Mt. Gox from happening um, and just in general reduce the, the risk from centralized exchanges and other centralized intermediaries. Um, and then fast forward today, you know, that this is the, the foundation of, a, you know, our non-custodial um, trade technology. In other words, you can go to Mt. Gox or any exchange and find a counterparty, but then you, you've settled the trade peer to peer. So you don't have to trust the exchange or the intermediary um, with receiving assets from both parties and settling the trade. And, you know, that's, you know, self-custody is something that is core to what we do at Blockstream. Um, you know, we believe it's an important part of everything we do, and um, hopefully um, we can convince um, others that self-custody, at least as an option, um, is something that's very critical to the, you know, the future Bitcoin economy. Yeah, it's, it's like Groundhog Day, isn't it? Like these Mt. Gox type events just keep playing out every cycle. And we talk a lot about on the podcast about, you know, trace mayors and the not your keys, not your coins. And you used to have a specific day of the year where people would you know, we're encouraged to pull their coins off the exchanges just to do a, a stress test. And of course, like 1% of people <laughs> would do that. And you really, you kind of do need these events though that happen, unfortunately, like clockwork to remind people about, to remind each new generation of investor um, about the importance of self-custody. And I guess Mt. Gox was the first of that series of events. Yes. And I like to describe our industry and I'm talking about the broader crypto industry, not Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin is a crypto, but it seems like the, the broader industry doesn't just step on rakes. They race to rakes and then step on them <laughs> because there's Mt. Gox. And then there's, you know, um, it seems like, unfortunately, pretty regularly, there's another reminder that, um, you know, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's just an unfortunate thing that seems to have to constantly happen um, just to keep people, keep that idea at the front of people's minds. Um, you know, so Blockstream has been through multiple market cycles at this point. Can you share some of the key strategies that have helped the company stay resilient and, and, and not only survive through all of those cycles, but I think probably really thrive as well? Yeah, so if, you're, if you've been in this space long enough, you've been through at least one cycle. Um, and for Blockstream... Uh, it doesn't get any easier because oftentimes a lot of the events that kind of lead to the the cycle just underscore what we're building. So, you know, you mentioned Mt. Gox, other, you know, things that have happened very recently, 2022 was, you know, a brutal year for the, the broader industry. Um, all of those things underscore what we're building, but the opportunity grows and the uh, the opportunity cost grows, like it becomes more important for us to execute on what we're doing. Um, I think the the thing that's kept us the most resilient during the bad times is uh, being very consistent during the good times. So when we started the company, you know, Ethereum was just coming on the scene. Um, so we kind of went through the ICO period 
and we deliberately avoided doing an ICO. Um, you know, why do we need another asset if we have Bitcoin? Um, you know, we focused on building the hard tech instead of uh, working on things that um, were faster to monetize, such as, I, you know, proof of concepts with some of the, you know, the banks that were spinning up innovation teams, you know, kind of in the 2015 time period. Um, you know, we, we deliberately avoided those because we didn't think that those projects would, uh, we didn't think the technology was mature enough to do what they wanted to do. And we didn't think that they would deliver the value that those innovation teams were shooting for. And so we, you know, stayed the course and focused on um, delivering on the promise of blockchain technology and not taking a blockchain and stripping out everything that makes it a blockchain just to um, complete a proof of concept. Um, and so our consistency and kind of staying the course through times when everybody was focused on, you know, tokenized assets, you know, ICOs through proof of concepts, um, you know, that consistency has helped us kind of stay the course um, during the bad times or the, the, the down times when we, you know, kept our head down and kept moving forward. Yeah, that 2015 area was, era was kind of a funny one, right? Where you had blockchain, but not Bitcoin. <laughs> and you talk to a lot of these big banks and the, the mentality at the time, I think, was, you know, they want innovation, but they don't really want anything to change um, at all. Yeah, we had people literally tell us that they were dusting off old IT projects, slapping blockchain on it and getting approval <laughs> to, to move forward. Uh, and, you know, Adam had this analogy where, um, you know, somebody comes to you, like, imagine you're at a, at a car, you know, a car lot and, and the car salesman says, well, you know, what do you want? And you describe, well, I want, you know, a sunroof. Well, you live in Seattle, you know, I want four wheel drive. Well, you know, <laughs> you live in the plains, um, or they're describing all these features that they want. And instead, they could just point to the, you know, the silver four-door sedan sitting at the lot that does 90% of what they want, um, but giving people the option to customize um, through these proof of concepts um, that a lot of these innovation teams were um, pushing forward was really, you know, insisting on a moonroof or a sunroof when you live in Seattle or a convertible. Now, the benefit of that is a lot of these teams have really... Um, made progress. They've educated themselves. They've, you know, rolled up their sleeves and dove into the tech. And so that was uh, a benefit of that ICO or excuse me, the proof of concept craze. Um, and interestingly, we're seeing a lot of those same teams come back to us and say, you know, we've tried to do this with, uh, you know, another chain, Ethereum based blockchain, and we can't nail confidentiality or you know, we're having issues with smart contracts or, or whatever the, the, the challenge is. And they're realizing that um, they could have or should have just um, taken the time to understand our platform, which is based on Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, admittedly a bit harder to, um, to master, but now we're seeing a lot of those same teams return and we're seeing a lot of traction um, with our platform. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to the Blockstream vision and how Blockstream has really stood the test of time. I mean, the vision 
you know, I think time has really shown that it's it's spot on, right? With concepts like self custody, and then and then liquid as well. I feel like the whole market, like you mentioned, how the market over time seems to be coming back to these the, these core value propositions from Blockstream, and I think liquid, the market is really coming back to those core value propositions around liquid again. I think there probably was a period like you know 2017 until very recently where a lot of mainstream institutional investors that are investing into the space or, you know, hedge funds, family offices, whatever it was, they preferred to go with the custodian route just because it meets a lot of the same objectives as, as, as liquid. And maybe it's a little bit easier. It fits in a little bit better with their structure. But with these last kind of string of recent blowups over the last 12 or 18 months, I feel like the liquid value proposition is really coming to the forefront again, right? Like controlling your own assets, faster, cheaper, more confidential. And, and it feels like, um, you know, just a broader vision over time, I think, has proven to be pretty spot on. Yeah. I mean, because we didn't do our own ICO, it's been, um, you know, a struggle to, to get people to, um, you know, early on, it was a struggle to get people to pay attention when they were getting paid, you know, quite a lot of money from other coins to integrate with their chain. Um, and, you know, the value proposition so, so liquid is two things. It's a, a layer two for Bitcoin. Um, so it's it basically the native currency is Bitcoin and it allows you to um, do things that you can't do on the Bitcoin main chain, such as, you know, very fast block confirmations. Um, very valuable if you're sending large amounts of Bitcoin between exchanges um, or otherwise just want to use Bitcoin, but, um, you know, want to have a faster confirmation. It's also its own blockchain that supports stable coins like Tether, um, our Blockstream mining node, security tokens. And so um, for that use case, it's incredibly valuable because it's based on the Bitcoin protocol. But self-custody or, or um, you know, centralized sources that support hundreds of altcoins in some people's minds are more valuable. They don't necessarily value a one minute block confirmation. They want an instant confirmation and they don't care that it's through a centralized um, intermediary. So it's, it's, you know, that's one of the challenges is constantly balancing the, um, the risks associated with centralization with the, the benefits that some people perceive through centralization. So it's, it's taken um, more time than we've uh, wanted to, to get liquid um, kind of up and running. Um, and, but now we're seeing lots of organic growth for the reasons you mentioned. Every time a bomb drops in the broader ecosystem, um, people realize, well, wait, liquid solves that. Um, and, you know, you can go down the list to a lot of the issues that the industry's faced over the last couple of years. And, um, you know, liquid lowers those risks significantly. It almost feels like Blockstream is, is almost too early to market at points. Like we have these great ideas and the market just isn't there yet. Do you, do you feel the same way? Uh, in some ways, you know, there's the analogy of, you know, don't skate to the puck, skate to where the puck's going to be. You know, sometimes I feel like we're in an, another arena waving our arms around saying, hey, at some point <laughs> we're going to create a new sport. It's going to be in this on this field. Um but that's, you know, that's the approach we've taken. That's, you know, um, what Adam envisioned when I first met him. Um, we're really looking towards the the kind of the long-term 
um, potential with technology doing things that, you know, shouldn't be um, pushed through Bitcoin proper and making it more flexible and extendable to, to, you know, really high value enterprise use cases. So yeah, we, we always kind of look out a couple clicks ahead of where the market is. It's always that balance between, um, you know, showing the users what they want versus building what they say they want. Um, but you know, that's, I think that's part of our vision is to kind of keep moving towards where we know the puck's going to be. Yeah. And I mean, when Blockstream says they're thinking long-term, I think you guys mean it in terms of like decades, right? We talked to um, Christian last week from the Blockstream research team about simplicity. And he mentioned that simplicity has been out for around a decade. And we asked him about how long do you think it's going to be take until it's implemented on the Bitcoin main chain? And he said, you know, maybe another five, maybe another 10 years. So, I mean, the, the, the very, very low time preference and just focused on doing what you think is the right thing and, and what will be most impactful and move the needle the most in the long term. Yeah, and I mean that's that's a challenge, right? That's a an asset and a liability because um, you know a lot of my job is is raising money, and it's not a traditional um, we're not a traditional software development company. <laughs> well, you know this this industry in general is is just very undercapitalized. Like um, you know, especially in markets like this. Um, and I hope none of our potential investors are listening, but uh, we, we find that there are a very few um, number of investors who actually understand the long term. And we're fortunate to have um, many of those on our cap table. Um, most of the people in this space love to buy high and sell low. <laughs> and especially, you know, we, we haven't talked about our mining business, but especially, um, you know, the mining industry is, is suffered through that in the last 18 months or so, um, where investors are actually, institutional investors are actually starting to educate themselves about Bitcoin mining. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, we'd get questions like, what's your average cost of electricity? Um, what, what type of mining hardware do you, you manage? And now we get questions like, what's your curtailment strategy? Um, you know, what's your, you know, what's your average daily hash rate for this facility or this, this container of miners. So, um, investors are really getting up to speed on mining, but it, it still feels like, again, we're operating a couple steps, um, ahead of the, the industry. Uh, I remember trying to convince investors that they should really lend money, uh, against Bitcoin miners. Um, oh no, those, you know, that those assets are, are too, uh, you know, exotic. Um, well now there are, you know, a dozen people that lend money, uh, and use Bitcoin miners as collateral. Um, and then we said, okay, well lend, you know, finance building a big substation so we can build a, a hosting facility. Oh no, that's, even though those are super boring, you know, assets that, that last 30 years, it's related to Bitcoin mining, so we can't do that. Well, now there are thankfully a half dozen people that will um, lend for those projects. Um, what we're trying to, to show people now is that the, the container itself or the data center complex that hosts these miners is kind of the Goldilocks asset. 
where it's not as volatile as the price of it or the value of a Bitcoin miner. And it doesn't take 12, 15 years to pay off, like building a, a massive substation would. Um, and we're still trying to get people to, to recognize that too. Um, so, so, it, so the, the industry is very undercapitalized, which makes it even, uh, more challenging to go through, um, a market, uh, like we've, um, gone through and there are signs that things are thawing. Um, but you know, my job is getting easier. Um, it's getting easier to help us, uh, you know, kind of continue to fund these longer term technology projects that, um, we think have, you know, an incredible opportunity, massive, you know, addressable markets, but will take time to develop. Um, through no fault of the technology, just just more of the, the attitude of the people that need to adopt it. Yeah, and I think also at time, it takes time to put all the building blocks together. So I'm thinking of that slide that we have in the, the Blockstream deck where it has all the product verticals. And each one of, it's just at a really broad product offering, right? You have everything from wallets to satellites to layer two solutions. And it, and it looks almost like when you look at it at first glance, you're like, well, this is such a broad offering. Like, why can't they just focus on a couple of things? But when you think about it, each one of those is an important building block to the overall kind of vision that, that Blockstream has of being, um, you know, a Bitcoin infrastructure company and, and having all of these different assets like security tokens working on top of, of Bitcoin. So I guess all of that takes time to put together as well. Yeah. And another part of our strategy is to validate the utility um, of our portfolio and our platform in the Bitcoin ecosystem, and then use that proof point in other parts of the capital markets to really drive revenue. So we could go to some of the, the, you know, the smaller startups that are using our platform and try to monetize their usage. Um, but that doesn't help the ecosystem and, you know, their startups themselves. So their, their ability to pay is limited. And so if our goal is to really show institutions, you know, TradFi, uh, enterprise users that this blockchain platform that we've developed is one that they should basically pivot pretty important parts of their business um, to, to build on, we need to have options for them in all parts of those ecosystems or all, 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 um, in every part of that, the ecosystem. So we need to have software wallet, hardware wallet, HSM, um, asset issuance tools, the actual, you know, the infrastructure, um, you know, blockchain technology itself. So um, it doesn't do us a service to pick one or two of those components and really try to lean into those. We need to develop the, the entire turnkey platform um, that we can then focus on maybe a use case or two. Right. So um, our our product is really the entire um, offering, including liquid and lightning and the hardware components and the software components and the, the future R&D that we're working on. Um, and then we can focus in terms of one specific target market. So what would you say is the main within all those different products and services? What would you say is the would you see as the primary focus at the moment? You know, we've tried to optimize our blockchain um, around asset issuance. And so I think that is the area of 
traditional finance that's going to see the 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 you know short or the the most adoption in the short term so you know it's kind of a chicken and an egg right in order to attract asset issuers you need to show that you've got enough users to to really you know want to invest and trade their asset in order to attract users you have to show that they're interesting assets you know reason for them to get on the dance floor um, we've chosen asset issuance as kind of the the chicken or the egg depending on where you fall um, so i think our ability to make it easier for asset issuers to um, issue assets on our platform and focus on the tools that will make that possible to not just issue them but to manage them you know have them their assets be auditable that'll attract pretty interesting assets and then that involves other technology as well like some of the the work our research team is doing to you know allow uh, for derivatives on these assets that are issued once we have a lot of interesting assets then we think it, it will attract users and is investors um but in in you know, my personal opinion, and in our experience, you are probably better positioned to, to comment on this as well. A lot of the early security tokens, and the setting stable coins aside, but a lot of the more interesting security tokens are kind of buy and hold assets. They're, they're novel assets that you probably can't get anywhere else, like our Blockstream mining note. But, you, you know, there isn't, you know, a healthy daily trading volume on those, um, but but that has that attracts users. It attracts other tools like wallets and other things that support that, which will then lead to I think assets that might see more velocity, and then that's when the fly rule really turns over. Um, so anyway, I know you have thoughts on this. So I want to get your thoughts. I want to hear your, what you have to say. I, I definitely agree. And I think that, you know, we have a lot of issuers coming to the platform that are kind of more traditional and they're not as, you know, they're conventional issuers. They do like regular bond issuances, stuff like that. Um, but they haven't done anything on, on, on Bitcoin or blockchain yet. And I don't think, I, I, I agree that, you know, that, that Liquid isn't maybe the most used platform out there, but they ask us for a recommendation, say, what's your preference? Um, and what have people done so far? And, you know, we like Liquid, so we put that in front of them. And if it, you know, if they can go through it and it makes sense to them, then they're, they're, they're happy to use it and adopt it. Um, and I would say also that for security tokens, I don't think there have been many actual real security tokens ever issued. So I think there's been a lot of headlines over the last, you know, probably since 2018. But most of them, especially the ones that have been issued in the U.S., like the real estate tokens and stuff like that, do they have a secondary market? Can you self-custody them? Can you trade them peer to peer? And it's almost universally no. So there's a lot of smoke and mirrors within this industry. And I, and I still think that the BMN is probably the flagship asset within security tokens because, you know, we were able to do it in decent size. We issued almost $50 million over eight tranches. People can self-custody it. It's trading on a couple of different exchanges. People can pull it off, you know, one exchange, send it to the other for arbitrage, and they can even do peer-to-peer -peer trading within that whitelisted ecosystem in a Telegram right. chat. <laughs> you know, how yeah. wild is that? So it's super yeah. cool. So I think it's early days, um, but I think the market is definitely heating up. There's going to be more interest here. And I think, I think El Salvador is going to be a massive driver. 
because if people don't know, you know, El Salvador is very, very Bitcoin focused, you know, and they want everything issued in terms of security token type products that are doing, you know, equity, equity like debt like kind of offerings. They want everything to be issued on Bitcoin based technology. Um, so I think that'll be a massive driver for Liquid because there's not that many options out there. There's like Liquid and RGB, and it looks like Liquid is probably much farther ahead. So I think this will be a big driver of uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin applications, and, uh, and, and, and Liquid. And I think also just in terms of proof of concept, we've basically in the STO world, I think we've got like, you know, one really decent sized proof of concept, which is the Blockstream mining note. When we get like 10 more in El Salvador, I think that's just going to attract so many more people. Right. And, you know, the, the Blockstream mining note, we think will eventually be an asset that would be an interesting asset to include in a portfolio that might get a lot of, you know, active increasing exposure, decreasing exposure. But right now it's just a really cool way to get access to Bitcoin mining. And so, you know, even that um, people that have it are kind of reluctant to sell it. <laughs> and so they're psycho diamond hands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bought it with Bitcoin because they want more Bitcoin and they're not going to sell it. Right. And they're going to get more Bitcoin if they if they invested in it. But but yeah. So, I, yeah, so it sounds like you agree with me. Like the the first milestone is to show that these assets can be as, uh, issued um, and then you like we're doing, continue to build kind of next gen uh, technology and features to make those assets even interesting. Like imagine if you could take the Blockstream mining note and, you know, Jesse and I know this asset well, there's plenty of information about what the Blockstream mining note is, but think of it as um, a tokenized and small sliver of a multi-year institutional hosting contract. And so um, part of the value of the asset is the Bitcoin that have been mined so far, it's been a bit over two years. So all the Bitcoin that was mined by that hash rate over two years. And then the rest of the, the value of the asset is the remaining life of the contract. Uh, folks on our research team are doing, you can deconstruct that so that you can only get exposure to the value of the hash rate. Like it's easy to get exposure to the Bitcoin portion, right? You just buy Bitcoin. But imagine adding some smart contracts through simplicity so that you can take that Blockstream mining note and just isolate the value of the hash rate. And maybe you think, you know, the value of a Terra hash is gonna go up if the Bitcoin price moons. Well, you can construct this asset that is a, a bundle of different derivative products that just isolates the value of that, um, the hash rate. To strip it out. Yeah, and so once you kind of create those kinds of things, well, now you're, you're doing things that you cannot do with TradFi. Um, and so that I think is going to be, you know, a huge opportunity. And the reason I think that TradFi is going to really lean into digital assets first is that actually makes them money, <laughs> right? A, a lot of the blockchain use cases that people have talked about are related to improving efficiency, reducing costs, you know, saving money. Firing people. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's a huge opportunity to cut out some of the waste in the system, but there, there's nothing sexier than adding to income by having new assets to sell, right? Yeah, no, I think that's probably a lot of like what the, you know, the big bank interest in blockchain is, is like, oh, now we can fire our back office. <laughs> well, look, when I was working in the in insurance industry, you know, I was placing 
loans to food companies, right? And those um, those are illiquid. Um, it takes you know weeks to settle a trade. So sometimes we would say, okay, we're you know we have too much exposure to the you know processed tomato industry, so we want to sell part of our exposure. But well, you know that. And there might be another insurance company that says we want to increase our exposure in the processed tomato sector, but that trade would take weeks to settle. So that is a, you know, and that's something private placement settlement um, is something that companies have been focused on. Um, and that's incredibly valuable, but again, that's saving money. It's much sexier to think about creating new assets or new asset class really. So these TradFi companies can increase the top line. So what other crossovers do you see between Bitcoin and traditional finance? And, and, and what are some other synergies you can think of? Well, I think those are the two big ones in my mind, um, adding an asset class to generate more income. Um, and then, so I think that's probably going to be the progression where um, TradFi leans into digital assets. Um so that there's another revenue stream that for them um, it increases availability and accessibility to individual investors and not just you know their high net worth clients but you know it can trickle all the way down to you know people like me who, who don't have you know massive margin accounts with these big banks um, and then once the once that asset class is established and people get used to things like self-custody and, and get used to things like, you know, non-custodial trades, then you can add on some of the, um, you know, more, uh, you know, next gen features that I was talking about where you can create derivatives and other things that you just can't do with uh, traditional finance now. And then once banks, get used to that, now they're kind of operating on a blockchain based, um, system, and then some of the things that are more efficiency-based or cost-saving-based would um, be easier for them to adopt, and that's where you get a lot of the value because you're hopefully preventing another financial crisis from happening. Because you know, I remember when I, not to digress to back back to the first question, but one of the first things I did when I met Adam is I. Um, listened to some of the podcasts that he had been on and he talked about literally in some future state, we could put the balance sheets of these big financial institutions on a blockchain so that traders literally could not um, get the balance sheet out of whack because they couldn't make trades if it violated some smart contract based covenants. So, you know, that's kind of a, you know, a long term, long time in the future. But that I think is another huge benefit to the technology is it could not just improve people's ability to access these interesting assets, but it could also prevent these like major economic hits from happening if things are governed by a blockchain and not, um, you know, trusting uh, these big banks to, to make decisions that affect every one of us. Do you see interest in liquid? Is it coming, do you think, um, from banks and from these intermediaries that I think in a lot of cases, you know, people like Bitfinex Securities, we're looking to disrupt, um, you know, and people wonder, why are you why are you registered and regulated in Kazakhstan and in the Astana International Financial Center? And why are you in El Salvador? And the reason is, is that 
you know, financial services in uh, Kazakhstan are like 4% of GDP. It's probably like 2% in El Salvador. So there's, they're looking to create a new industry and that's the opportunity for us. And we don't get as much pushback from these intermediaries that have dug super deep moats um, that you get in like across the G7. So do you see interest in liquid coming from like those, the big banks, the people that are standing in the middle of trades, or do you see it more coming from issuers and investors? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. Yeah. So, you know, for, for some um, banks, and I, I, I mentioned that some of the folks we talked to back in the, you know, 2015, 2016 proof of concept wave are coming back to us. Um, having, you know, worked with the technology for years, having tried different things um, and recognizing that a protocol based on Bitcoin is what they should have started with. Um, I think that some of those institutions are comfortable using liquid proper or using liquid directly. Um, but liquid is just one instance of our elements open source toolkit. Uh, one of the things that we've improved over the years is, um, you know, when we would have, you know, a U.S. stock exchange propose that we put their equity exchange on our blockchain as a proof of concept and kind of mirror the actual um, operations of the, the, you know, their actual exchange and then that proof of concept would be presented as, you know, potentially justification for moving their exchange to a blockchain. Um, you know, that sounds amazing. It was not trivial for a startup of 20 people to work on. Um, well, now we can spin up a, a, a federation, you know, very easily. So that proof of concept is now something that we can do um, without dedicating six, nine months of our entire engineering team's time. So <clears throat> for those that can't use liquid proper because of regulatory reasons, you know, KYC requirements, you know, depending on what they're doing, where they're doing it, uh, we can take our elements toolkit and create another version of liquid and let them, um, you know, kind of spin up their own version of it still based on Bitcoin still interoperable with both Bitcoin and Liquid and any other side chain that spins up using our toolkit. And so we're, we're seeing interest from, um, you know, folks that want to integrate to Liquid proper, folks that are interested in spinning up their own federation based on their specific use case, and a lot of interest in asset issuers that, that want to um, create these really cool novel assets on Liquid. What is the dynamic like between you and Adam, given your different um, backgrounds? I mean, Adam is like the OG cypherpunk, but I think maybe people don't appreciate his depth of knowledge when it comes to trading and, and capital markets. The first time I met Adam in person was we did a Bitcoin conference for Macquarie in the Macquarie Hong Kong offices in like 2017. And Adam presented on Liquid and, and how it could operate as a dark pool. And it was completely not what I was expecting, or I think what the audience was expecting, um, you know, just the, the depth of his knowledge of, 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 of markets. And I think, you know, you can tell by his tweets that he enjoys trading um, and, and that's how his mind works. 
So I think he probably has a, a deeper understanding of financial markets than maybe people expect. But how do you guys work together? What's the dynamic like given you know, your slightly different backgrounds? Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. Um, Adam is brilliant. Um, you know, brilliant cryptographer, incredible um, engineer, but also very savvy when it comes to the business part of things. Um, and so, yeah, we have a really, a really good relationship. Um, there are lots of things about us that are different. And so we balance each other very well. Um, you know, an example of that is, uh, you know, he burns the midnight oil. Uh, he's in Europe. I'm in California. I can't tell you the number of times I've been on the phone with him and said, like, let's pick this up in the morning. I got to go to bed <laughs> and it's 8 PM for me. And like, you know, pretty much the next morning for him. Um, he also thinks in code, I think in spreadsheets. So, you know, how his mind works, he, you know, he comes up with ideas, you know, like I breathe oxygen. And so it's really, it, well, it's helpful that, um, I'm able to kind of quickly bang out some back of the envelope spreadsheet to show, you know, if it's worth spending more time on. And it's even more helpful that he's open to um, listening to that point of view. He, he's very, uh, I've never met anybody that's as um, brilliant as he is, but also is open to being affected by the ideas of others. Um, and there are also things that we have in common. So we balance each other by being similar. So, you know, he, he has, uh, you know, his integrity is incredibly high. Just some of the strategic decisions that we've made, such as not choosing to raise hundreds of millions of dollars by issuing, you know, Adam coin, um, just, just speak to, uh, you know, his, his ethos and, you know, he's very, he takes a very long-term view which is required when we're working on the stuff that we're working on. Um, and he believes in our strategy. I mean, that financial model I built for him in March of 2014 is essentially what we're doing today, except there are a few things we haven't had the time to do yet. Um, and so we're, we're very aligned in, in those areas too. So it, um, it's, it's, you know, it's very, uh, it's incredible working with him. Yeah. Um, so for broader Bitcoin adoption and for adoption for liquid, do you see this as being incremental or do you think we're going to hit a, a, a tipping point and then there's sudden implementation? How do you see that playing out? Yeah, I, I do think there are going to be some pretty big um, kind of inflection points. Uh, in general, I, I feel like, you know, I like to measure things in terms of like, what would my mom do? Like, would my mom use online banking for the longest time? She wouldn't use online banking and now she does. Right. Um, my mom wouldn't use Bitcoin, even though she would benefit from it. Um, and so I think before we get to that level of adoption, you know, my mom runs circles around me when it comes to, you know, posting on Facebook. Um, but I think it'll be it'll be a while before moms are the last people still using Facebook, <laughs> right? Um, but I think a big reason why it might take a bit longer than a lot of Bitcoiners would like for Bitcoin to just kind of like cross that chasm of mass adoption is that, um, especially in the U.S. and in a lot of countries, it's you know a credit-based society. We've got to convince people not just that self-custody is valuable, 
but that moving to, you know, a debit based financial model is valuable. And that's not like places like El Salvador where it's, you know, that's a necessity. And so I think, um, like you said, that type of wave of adoption will occur in places like El Salvador before it'll occur with, you know, my mom. Um, but I do think that what we talked about before, where this kind of new asset class, you know, Bitcoin, is it a commodity? Is it a security? Is it a this? No, it's, it's different. It's Bitcoin. It's a different asset class that traditional finance will lean into um, that will necessarily drive demand for tools for issuers, tools for traders, um, you know, other types of smart contracting features that just amplify the value of the assets. Um, so I think that's kind of the cadence that we'll see probably through traditional finance. But um, I'm expecting, not just hoping, I'm expecting some pretty big inflection points with things like, um, you know, the the BlackRock ETF and, and places like El Salvador. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting. I think there's a really big kind of global equity equity story to to Bitcoin that I think doesn't get enough coverage you know how Bitcoin is really used in places that need it, and and the, the the difference in how Bitcoin is used between the developed world and the emerging markets. In the emerging markets, it's something that's like you know it's survival. People need it. The same for Tether. You know, people it just works, so people use it, um, and they they don't they don't uh, you know have as much of the um, tinfoil hat stuff going on as people on Tether do about or on people on uh, Twitter do about Tether. Um, and then in the developed world, Bitcoin is really, you know, mostly it's a speculative asset, right? It's maybe a hedge against inflation, but it's it's probably seen mostly as a, as a risk asset. And then there's a real opportunity for these places like El Salvador or Kazakhstan or places throughout Central Asia or Africa to leverage the technology and uh, develop uh, capital markets. I mean, I had this one question asked to me the last time I was uh, in Kazakhstan by a presenter saying, you know, how do we get Bitcoin and crypto companies to interact more with financial centers. And my thought was, you know, maybe not, that's not the right question. I think our focus is more on developing new financial centers. So I think that's a, a huge opportunity with Bitcoin that probably doesn't get enough coverage, certainly not in Twitter or kind of like the Western world. Yeah, no, you're right. I think, you know, getting people to change the way they do something is different than providing people with something that they haven't had before. And so I think you're exactly right, like creating financial centers, creating uh, or empowering people to, um, you know, control their own, you know, generations of wealth through something like Bitcoin versus a local currency. I think that is, um, I think those places will see the value the fastest and with, you know, kind of the continued work of some companies that are really focused on those parts of the world, I think that will generate the most adoption in the short term. To wrap things up, what excites you most over the next maybe 12 or 18 months in terms of both the Blockstream product line and Bitcoin more more broadly? Wrap it up with that. We should start over with that question. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I'm I'm a bit biased, but I'm I'm really excited about the things that uh, we're working on with the you know, constant reminder of why we started the company, you know, the, the layer twos that um, we and other people are working on, I think are finally hitting their stride. Like we haven't spent any time talking about lightning, right? We could spend another couple hours talking about lightning. Um, you know, we've, we've invested, you know, just like simplicity, <laughs> we've been working on lightning for, 
you know, almost the entire um, life of the company. We've been working on liquid for a long time. We're finally starting to see the kind of organic results of, of all that work we've put in. Um, you know, lightning and liquid are valuable, um, full stop. Combining the two, so now you've got, um, you know, not only is Bitcoin the most scalable blockchain in the world when you look at the, the layered approach, but when you add lightning on liquid, that is kind of another way to scale Bitcoin um, because it allows, you know, lightning to potentially grow faster and cheaper. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited about us finally pulling together a lot of these strands, um, adding simplicity, um, you know, fully integrating all the parts of our platform that, um, you know, we've kind of envisioned from the beginning. And then in terms of the broader ecosystem, um, I think in the next few years, we'll finally start to see the, the true impact that um, the Bitcoin is going to have, you know, the, the financial inclusion stuff we just talked about, but also, you know, using Bitcoin to and Bitcoin mining to accelerate renewable energy. Um, you know, the, I'm not sure what it's like where you are, but the weather in California has just been crazy over the last couple of years and we just had a typhoon run through here yes bitcoin uses a lot of electricity but that's an opportunity <laughs> that's not a um that's not uh you know adding to the problem of climate change and we could talk for another hour about that too um but you know and then eventually preventing another aig financial crisis right that's that's kind of what immediately compelled me to um want to join the company and that still might be a few years off, but I do feel like um, that opportunity is going to come into focus over the next couple of years, even if it's still going to be another decade before Adam builds his um, blockchain dark pool. Well, that's great. Well, I really appreciate the time today, Eric, and uh, I hope we can do it more regularly going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.